Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? The Fabulously Keto podcast is sponsored by Fabulously Keto. And this is run by me, Jackie, and I offer one-to-one coaching. In January, coming up in January, on the 12th or 13th of January, we're going to be doing a group um, accountability learning support um, course for about 12 weeks. Um, If you want to find out more, you can get in touch on the website. Um, And also the Fabulously Keto Journal. Now, if you're a person that likes to see your journey in front of your eyes, then the Fabulously Keto Diet and Lifestyle Journal is for you. This workbook has been specifically created with you in mind. If you're looking to review and reflect on how you're doing, the journal helps you to make decisions about what you might need to change to your diet and lifestyle to get the outcome you desire. Whilst it has been designed with low carb and ketoers in mind, it can be used for any type of diet and lifestyle change. This journal is not for someone who's looking for instructions on how to follow a low carb or keto diet. This journal charts your journey. You decide on your goal and your journal will guide you to break your goal down into achievable milestones. You can track how you're moving towards your goal. It will get you to notice how you feel. Working towards your goal should make you feel good. Each day has a double page with detailed areas of health and well-being to score and review. It has a section for you to log your food intake, your exercise, plus focus on what went well and where you struggled. Not only are you working towards a goal, you want to create new habits that will serve you better and drop the habits that no longer serve you. These habits will support your goals and your new lifestyle. The journal also includes body measurement tracking. There are weekly food plan sections. There's a section for your before and after photos. There's a habit tracker. There's time-restricted eating and intermittent fasting tracker and lots more. So to get your book, go to amazon.com and search for the Fabulously Keto Diet and Lifestyle Journal or click on the, the link in your podcast app or go to the show notes and there's a link there that will take you directly to the book. Thank you. Welcome to the Fabulously Keto Podcast. This is episode 114. And today we are interviewing another one of Jackie's recruitees from the PHC conference, Joanne McCormack. Mm. Dr. Joanne McCormack. Oh, sorry. Yes, Dr. Joanne. So um, 
really great because when I was in the UK, I actually had the opportunity when we attended, we both attended the PHC conference in 2019, we actually saw Dr. Joanne present. So it was really great that, um, yeah, you got to see her again at the most recent conference. Yeah, she was on the stage again. And um, yeah, and she's also a trustee of the PHC. And as you're here, she's very involved with the work at the PHC. So yeah, it's been great to have a chat with her. So as a, well, GP, she sort of mentioned that, you know, in her role as a general practitioner, it's really great that we'll hear how her own lived experience informed her practice. And these stories really resonate with me as to, you know, being a health professional, but having that lived experience of the power of obviously, you know, having a, you know, low carb diet. So our way of living and, but seeing that transformation, not only in yourself, but, but for your patients and in your practice, I think that that's a real powerful story. Mm. Not wanting to give away too much of what the listeners are in store for today, but, um, yeah, the story certainly resonates with me. Yeah. Why don't you tell us a bit more about Dr Joanne? Dr Joanne McCormack is a UK doctor and former GP who first learned the powerful value of ketogenic diets in 2014, first personally and then with her patients. She was a GP for 30 years, but only started to see people reversing their their obesity and type 2 diabetes once they started to use tools like keto, low carbohydrate and intermittent fasting as ways of life. It was as if the UK woke up to keto and progress was made for the very first time. She recognises that the UK Eat Well Guide is potentially harmful for diabetic and overweight people as it recommends too many carbohydrate-containing foods. It helped to launch the charity The Public Health Collaboration, phcuk.org, with the dual aim of educating health professionals and the public about better ways of looking at food and campaigning at a national level for better government dietary advice. Let's go and hear from Joanne. Welcome Joanne to the Fabulously Keto podcast. I should say welcome Dr. Joanne to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. (laughs) Oh thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be on on your podcast. And we always start with where in the world are you? Uh, I am in Warrington in the north of England which is equal equidistant between Liverpool and Manchester. So people tend to have heard of the football teams and locate locate me in that way. <laughs> not me. I don't, I'm not a sporty person. <laughs> so why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about your journey and how you came to low carb? Because I know you've been doing it for quite a while. Um, and are you low carb or more keto? Tell us a bit about, you know, as well, how you how you tend to eat. OK, so um, I used to eat like I broadly followed the well guide in the sense of I had a third of my plate as carbohydrate dish so I was quite fond of pasta and rice and potatoes and actually because I come from Ireland and um, often we would have three sorts of potatoes on the plate obviously mashed chips and roasts <laughs> and um and and we ate I always tried to sort of not eat too much but I'd always eat lots and try and get lots of exercise if you know what I mean rather than not eating much and not and exercising a lot I would always eat lots of food because I'm a real foodie I love my food and I 
never understood why I was a bit overweight. I was overweight as a child, not terribly, not enough to go to a hospital clinic, but I was a bit podgy. And my, some of my siblings were very slim. And it was always a mystery to me because I felt that I, you know, ran about as much as they did. And, and I ate similar food to them because we all lived in the same house. And, um, but I, I, I was reasonably successful at keeping my weight down as a, as a sort of at university. I, I cycled everywhere and, and I, I didn't have much money. And I used to make my own food from scratch, but I would eat up things in addition, you know, I'd eat crisps and chocolate and all the rest. And, but I was still okay. But then when I got older, I got, you know, I obviously put weight on. Um, and I used to think one day we will know why some people get fat and other people don't, you know, because I like, for instance, I had a, a two grandmothers and one was very slim and one was very fat and they, you know, their diets were very similar. And uh, so my grand, one grandmother's family were more inclined to put weight on and the other, were, the other family was inclined to be slim. Um, but I was, dri- I was driving along. Uh, I, I was a GP in the same practice for 23 years. And I was driving along one day doing my home visits. And I would have about three or four home visits a day, usually elderly people. And I heard uh, a radio interview with Robert Lustig. So it was just a completely chance occurrence. Um, and he was saying how he was a professor of endocrinology and he dealt with obese children in, in California. And, and he was saying how children were having liver transplants because their livers were so um, affected by fat, fatty liver. And he said it's not that they eat fat, it's that they eat sweet stuff and they drink sweet stuff. They drink a lot of juice. He said that um, they got free orange juice in America if they were from poor families and it made poor people even fatter. And, and he told them, you know, not to drink the juice, not to drink sweet stuff and not to eat sweet stuff and that that would reduce the liver fat. And so it was almost as quick as that because I don't have I didn't have very long in my car in between visits. You know, the practice area was within a sort of two mile radius of the practice. So often it was only 10 minutes to get from one house to another house and from the, that back to the practice. And so that little radio um experience changed my life really um you know I started thinking about food differently and I looked up his his um YouTube video and that was in I think 2013 um and at that time my mother another thing happened which was sort of linked so my mother had a heart attack so my mother was someone who had put on weight easily from her 30s and and she absolutely adored sweet stuff you know she she was a really good baker um, it was one of her main hobbies. If she was bored, she would bake. If she had visitors, she would bake. Um, you know, if she was sad, she would bake. And so she she always ate a lot of sweet stuff. So I started thinking about her weight problem differently. Just thinking, you know, she was she had, you know, she was a, she just loved her sweet stuff, and she would eat and she would think about it even all the time. Which mm-hmm. is interesting. You think about you think about it. It, it sort of um, you know it affects you hormonally as well. Um, and then you go and make it and then you eat it and so on. And and I've never had such a sweet tooth as I, yeah, I could, if somebody put a cake in front of me, I could have, I might've had two slices or whatever. Um, but, uh, but I never got into baking the way she did. Maybe I wasn't so good at it, or maybe I thought if I bake it, I'll eat it. But, um, but that's, that happened. Um, and then, so that made me think more about cutting out sweet stuff. So at that time I cut out sweet stuff. And then my sister got a really sort of unusual sort of arthritis um, called ankylosing spondylitis. And she was really very crippled by it. She was in her early 40s. And um, 
And she started, she was off work because of arthritis and she started researching diet as a means of helping her arthritis. And I didn't know anything about it at the time, um, but she started telling me about the um, doctors who she'd read about and the diet she'd read about to help arthritis. And she found one that helped her called the London AS Diet. And if anybody is listening into this who's got ankylosing spondylitis, to make it work, in my opinion, you have to be very strict about it, but it can make a really big difference. So she controlled her ankylosing spondylitis with this London AS diet. And in the process, she found um, Dr. David Perlmutter. Mm. And she started talking about how um, his gluten-free diet, now it doesn't involve any gluten-free products, it involves foods that never had gluten in them in the first place, like meat and fish and eggs and, and dairy produce and uh, vegetables and so on. Um, his diet ha- helped people prevent diabetes and potentially dementia and other brain diseases, or at least might alleviate them um, in some way. And so then I started reading um, his books and looking at his um, material on the internet. And um, and then that put me in you know a very different place. And I started thinking differently about how I manage diabetes. Um, because before that, um, most practices have got a diabetic nurse or maybe three or four diabetic nurses and they will manage the diabetes. And doctors just, they don't get involved apart from at the drug prescribing level. They don't get involved with diet at all. They don't have any training in diet. They don't, often they haven't got further qualifications in diabetes. Um, But for my part, I never understood diabetic management. It just never made sense to me. And so, you know, when something doesn't make sense, it doesn't really sit, it doesn't really sink in. You'd think, oh, maybe there's something about me that means I don't understand it. But Mm -hmm. I started to understand diabetes just through my read, my lay reading, really, and um, that, you know, reading the books that Dr. Pearl Mutter had written and other people like William Davis. Um, and then obviously the wonderful Robert Bernstein, who's got um, Diabetes University, which are little 15, 10, 15 minute videos talking about how to manage diabetes on YouTube. I mean, that's really that was a game changer for me looking at Robert Bernstein. And um, I went to our diabetes lead in the practice. And I said, I'm really concerned that we're managing diabetes wrong. You know, it's just not right what we're doing. It's, it's uh, you know, we're giving the wrong dietary advice. And and um, and she said, I know. <laughs> she said, I've been wondering how to talk to you about it. It's just not, it's just not going to happen. It just won't, it's no wonder it doesn't work. It's no wonder that our diabetes audit figures, and not just our practice, but the whole country, the whole country has really poor diabetes figures when, when diabetes management is audited. Everybody gets worse unless they follow um, a ketogenic diet or a low carb diet, They're, they just get worse and worse over time. Um, and um, and so we changed the diabetes advice we gave in the practice to a low carb, to a low carb advice system. So did um, you just decide amongst you to just do it? Yeah. You, didn't, you didn't talk to anyone? You, you just No, we just thought we'd get on with it. Did you have any um, pushback from other medics in the in the practice? No. No, we weren't a very big practice. We had 7,000 patients. There were five partners and everybody else just thought, um, you know, that makes sense. And I spoke to a young doctor recently who's um, she's the niece of my husband and she's about she's in her early 30s. And and I was talking to her about the controversies around low carbon diabetes. And she just said, why would anybody think a high carb diet was good for diabetes? Mm, you know it it cannot you know like she'd obviously come into the space when you know I guess doctors like her only think in terms of low carb for diabetes whereas we'd been through the whole thing of 
pretending or believing that we could you could eat what you wanted and have enough drugs to it doesn't work like that yeah and obviously people can eat what they want but they've got to take the consequences because the consequences will be um deteriorating health and your health getting worse more quickly than it would do otherwise and um, i've got somebody who i met at the beginning who i talked to to about a low carb diet a diabetic who had an hba1c of 115 that's really very severe um and he's been down in the 30s for six years fabulous and feeling really well because he just grasped it he just thought right well i don't want to get an amputation or blindness um and it's fine i'm happy changing my diet to a low carb diet and he's done that consistently ever since he's never i don't think he's got significant he's ever had any significant addiction to um processed carbs or sugar so it was relatively easy for him um but it works and that's you know that's the message i try and put out to people that low carb diets work if they don't work because you keep relapsing because of your sugar addiction then you need mm. to tackle your sugar addiction and i think that's a bigger issue because um there's not a lot of work done in terms of sugar and processed food addiction um i think that there just isn't the money for the research and there aren't enough practitioners and i think that's a, going to be a massive growth area um a really good growth area I mean the only person I know is through and you may know more people but obviously Jen Unwin and Heidi Shaver um run courses and they're doing research and they're going to publish it but I don't know anybody else at the moment. Yeah. I mean we know a few. I mean there's Bitten Johnson. Yes of course. And of course um for Bitten Bitten I've been to um training with Bitten um and and Ashley Gearhart but they're all they're all linked if you know what I mean. I don't know any other groups mm. who are working on it separately. Yeah. Mm. And yeah. don't forget David David Wolf. Um, yeah, obviously, obviously, but that's in the US. But mm. you know what? What this means is, you know, you really it was fortuitous that you were just obviously out on your home visits, and it happened to be, you know, that's that on that radio interview with Robert Lustig. Mm. You know, almost like that sliding door moment. You know, what if you were ten minutes earlier or ten minutes later? Yeah, you, yeah. you wouldn't have wouldn't have done that. So that was two thousand thirteen. But how long was it before you actually changed, um, you know, changed the practice? So when when did you implement? 2014. So it Sorry, was probably, yeah. yeah, probably like end of 2013. I changed myself first. So I had three months, January, February, March, changed myself really dramatically. People said things like, gosh, you look like a new person. Um, and I went on, a, on the um, keto diet, which is the um, grain brain one. So it's about 30 grams a day. And I couldn't believe my eyes just with, I lost a pound or two a week, maybe probably obviously like maybe half, maybe three or four the first week or whatever. And, um, and then it just kept falling off, even though I was eating lots of food and, and I felt really well. I felt like I had tons of energy. I felt like my brain was just like really buzzing and, and um, I felt great. And people said things like, oh, how do you live without pasta and how do you live without rice and and how do you live without sweets and crisps and stuff like that? And I was like, I don't know. I don't mind. It just doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me at all. Um, and, and it's not like it's, I think one of the hardest things is that you do have that initial wonderful enthusiasm. And I think that it has challenges along the way because after a while you think, oh, I'll just have one piece of bread or whatever down the line. Um, and then you might be badly affected by it. You know, it might make you feel really ill and you think, oh, why did I do that? 
and and I think it's in human nature just to have a go and sometimes you're just a bit embarrassed to say no uh, I remember going to someone's house and they cooked them they obviously didn't know how I ate and they cooked a massive lasagna which looked like a really really nice lasagna and I was like gosh, I can't say no but I think I left you know if I didn't really eat the pasta, I ate the meat and, you know, and the, and the sauce or whatever. <laughs> I just, you know, and, and I think I started to feel very differently about food. It was interesting, really. I, before, I thought very much in terms of not eating too much or if I did eat a lot, then having a bit of a gap afterwards and getting a lot of exercise. Whereas I started to think of food as being nourishment. Yeah. And I'd think, yeah, and I'd think, well, that's a really nourishing thing. Like, I'd feel really good if I ate liver. I'd think, well, that was really nice. I do like liver. I always did, but I didn't buy it very often. Um, but if I ate liver, I'd think, oh, that's really good because it's got such a lot of nutrients in it and it'll do me a lot of good. Um, rather than just thinking I won't get too fat or do you know what I mean? And and I, I say with crisps, crisps are a really good example of something that I used to eat, not sort of over the top but I might buy um, a sandwich and a bag of crisps for lunch for instance and I started to think of them as like a harmful substance rather than a tasty snack yeah yeah and I'm not terribly harmful you know like I'd say to it's amazing how people will argue the toss with you and say <laughs> oh, they can't be harmful you know everybody eats them and 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 they're nice don't you mind not eating them and I'd say well yeah they are quite nice but I've had 50 years of eating them I can live without them. <laughs> I've done my bit of crisp eating and I've done my bit of cake eating. And cake was another one that took a while. Crisp, crisp went immediately. I just didn't want a crisp after that. You know, even if somebody offered me one, I said, oh, I'm fine. Um, even now, you know, if somebody had their tasties, like kettle chips or something that I used to really love. Yeah, they're my favourite. Yeah, I just think, no, you're all okay. I'm not, I'm not bothered. But cake took longer to go. And especially I probably was in the stage of, you know, where you meet a friend for coffee and cake. I think yeah. maybe it's something moms do or younger women do particularly, or maybe, maybe I've just fallen out of the habit of it because I don't eat cake now. But um, there was a stage where I still meet people in a coffee shop when I would have half, half a cake if you know what I mean, or I might have a really nice piece of cake and think, oh, I'm really going to enjoy this. And I still might do that if it was in someone's house and they'd made a cake and it felt embarrassing to say no. I might have a piece of cake, but my feelings about that cake are really, really different. And it's it's hard to describe in a way, but it's like before I knew about keto and about how nutrients worked, really. Um, I used to eat a piece of cake like like it was... I don't know, a pig and muck really, you know, like really, really sort of scoff it and really love it and then maybe have a second piece. Um, but but once I thought differently about food, I would I'd think, oh, it it just lost its sheen. Do you know what I mean? It just lost its excitement, you know. So if I do, do have a piece of cake, which I reckon it's probably possibly once a year uh, in a situation where it feels rude to say very very rude to say no rather than just that's fine because mostly I'll just say no I'm fine I, I've eaten I'm not hungry or whatever um I don't have that feeling that I've always got room in my stomach for cake yeah it everything changes doesn't it as you as you get into it I mean for me my killer thing was potatoes how could I have a dinner without potatoes but you just get used to it I don't know what what changes but it does change yeah i think there's there's different chemicals you know obviously there's the different chemical pathways that we sort of you know with with changing the way that we do eat we don't actually do all those reward pathways and as we know we've we've 
listen to to Dr. Jen and Heidi and and Bitten Johnson and and David Wolf that we understand about the biochemical sort of pathways. But where you're talking about cake, you know, I've you know I've changed obviously the way that I eat to not obviously the the sweet cakes, but a cheesecake, you know. So that's where, you know, you can sort of, you know, make substitutes. So how do we get away with not having rice? Then we make the cauliflower rice. So how do we get away with, you know, pasta? Then we can use the the zucchini or the courgette noodles. Or, you know, if we want cake, make a cheesecake. What's a better keto, low-carb than, you know, cheese, baked cheesecake? So um, I think... You know, one, we can make substitutes. We can still have our cake and eat it too. But, you know, we we just make those substitutes and we get around those sorts of things. Until such time as it just, as you said, Jackie, it just doesn't matter anymore whether we have a potato or, or not have a potato. So, you know, I think there's there's a few things that over time changes in our, our brain chemistry. Mm. We're very much creatures of habit. I mean, it's just, it, you know, on... In Ireland, with my relatives who live in the farm, they 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 their industry was potatoes, and so they would sell potatoes, obviously, to um, wholesalers and also to crisp factories, um, and and they would eat an awful lot of potatoes. So some of them really struggle with the idea of me not eating potatoes. You know, I come from probably many generations of potato farmers, yeah. and um, it's really strange to them that I don't eat potatoes. But they, you know, like. You don't have to eat everything, do you? And and I just feel, I feel differently about them now. You know, I just think, well, what if they do push my blood sugar up? Um, one of the best things I think that's happened in the last few years is is the um, is the 20, the advent of 24-hour monitoring of blood sugar so that individual people can see what happens with different foods. So I encourage everybody to do it. And if you're a diabetic person, you can get a free one, like a freestyle Libra, you can get free for two weeks. Yeah. And you can see what happens and you can share the graphs with your doctor to show them what happens. Or you can just stop eating the food that makes your blood sugar go up. So one of the surprises for me, and I'm not diabetic, but I think I'm like many people, I'm pre-diabetic. And um, one of the surprises for me was how high mine went with um, things like little mini tomatoes um, and strawberries, which I wouldn't regard as, you know, I'd regard that as fine within a within a keto diet to have some strawberries or tomatoes. Now, if you have the strawberries and cream, um, you know, mine still, with the strawberries and cream, mine still went up. So actually I find mine was best if I stuck to non-sweet foods. And so what I talk about to people at times is resetting your sweetometer. So you just actually get used to more savory foods, you know, have cheese rather than having fruit and have, um, you know, just, yeah, don't have, put it, don't have even keto puddings because they may maintain your 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 sweet tooth. But I mean obviously having them once in a while is uh, okay. So so you brought the you you talked to the diabetic nurse and then you both agreed that you were gonna change things. So what happened then? Yeah, so um it was quite interesting really because um quite a few people in the practice started looking at low carb diets and following it, following them themselves. And um we started to feel differently about it's interesting, really. We started feeling in differently about the sweet treats that patients brought us. And that's really difficult because I think most people have got some sort of sugar addiction. Uh, and so you would want them but not want them. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You would. You, you, so for a while, we didn't get any biscuits or cakes or sweets. We just didn't. They weren't in reception or they weren't in the 
um, for quite a long time. They weren't in the kitchen and so on. But I was definitely the driver for it. So then when I left, um, I think they came back. Um, but it's like Lou Walker did that thing about, is it time to rethink office cake? You know, most people want less of it, but nobody wants to be the person to suggest it. And then if one person like myself was the driver behind it, then when they leave, you go back to the status quo, because as I say, we're all creatures of habit. Um, yeah, so so what happened was we didn't really have, we just started doing low carb with patients and offering them as, a, as an option, because not everybody chooses it. I mean, especially the people who are addicted to sweet stuff will probably want to continue to eat the things that they've always eaten and try and have enough medication to cover it. Yeah. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't have universal appeal. Or people think, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, but I'm not ready for it at this time in my life you know, give me, give me a while. Um, or they just keep it in their heads, you know. So, so one of the most lovely messages I got from a patient was probably four or five years down the line. And this person contacted me through Messenger and said that she'd heard my message about low carb back, you know, several years before. And she thought she'd do it one day and how she had done it and how she had lost, you know, pile of weight, four or five stone, and how it had enabled her to get pregnant and she was about to have a baby. Oh. And and I thought that was so lovely. And I think that's the thing about the low carb message is it it's it's very logical. Um it's something that you can do. You may not be able to do it now, but store the information and find and remember how to find out about it so you can do it eventually. And and if you are ready, start making baby steps if you're not ready to take the plunge completely. Um, and I think sometimes that is much easier on your body anyway, if you just start giving up some of the sweet stuff. I mean, one of the easiest things I found was to stop eating cereal. Yeah. It's, I only ate it because I thought it was healthy. Yeah. Why, Why did we ever think that? I didn't particularly. I, I didn't. Yeah, it's a wee bit crunch, like, say, I don't know, cornflakes are quite crunchy, but they're not very nice with just milk. You know, you probably want to add a bit of sugar because they're not quite sweet enough. Um, and a special K, you know, I used to have it as a health food occasionally. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> it's not a health food for anybody who's just tuned in or whatever. Um, you know, so actually understanding the Kellogg story and the link to the Seventh-day Adventists and weird things like weird ideas they've got about, se- let's say, about sex in general. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than going into details. But, you know, it's a very weird thing that's become a highly profitable industry. And, and I find cereal really easy to give up. I never felt tempted to buy a box of cereal or if I was in a house and someone offered me cereal, I never felt I wanted to have some. And that's interesting, really. So that was a really easy thing to give up. And I suppose if you look at the whole expanse of what low carb means, people will find some things very easy. Like I found it very easy to give up pasta, for instance. I actually like the sauce more than the pasta. So I find no trouble at all eating, um, you know, the sauces with other things like on a chicken or fish or whatever, or, or having zucchini. Uh, I found that no trouble at all. The harder thing for me was actually, you know, that um, thing we have about, Oh, you could have a square or two of dark chocolate. Mm. Well, that actually became an addictive thing for me in a small way. Um, so I couldn't have a square or two. I would have the whole bar. Yeah. Um, and so, and that was, and actually I would go, I don't really, I don't buy um, chocolate. Um, I will, interestingly, I can eat it in someone else's house if they've, you know, they've got, you know, a small amount of dark chocolate at the end of a meal. I will just have one or two there. That would be fine because it'd be rude to eat all of them and not leave, <laughs> leave any for people. But I, I find it better not buying dark chocolate. Um, 
and that was only it was never an issue for me before but when I was eating crisps and sweets and you know my favorite I used to love those Belgian shells if somebody gave me those Belgian shells for my breath birthday I would be yeah oh, I'd have 90 percent of them yeah I yeah, I I think that's where we're all different. And I think each person has to look at themselves and say, can I do that or can't I do that? Because I'm a person that can. I can have one square of chocolate. I don't really like it, but sometimes you want something slightly chocolatey. And and so I can have that one square and then not have one for days. So, mm. But if you can't do that one square. So Bitten Johnson says um, one square is never enough no one square is too many and a thousand is never enough yeah yeah, like yeah that. i can't remember it might be the other way yeah. around yeah yes i can i can and i suppose we've all got limits to our well not we've all got different limits to our addictions so i could eat a whole bar but i wouldn't be tempted to drive out and buy a second one yeah if you know what i mean but then i don't want to eat a whole bar because i know that it's not doing me any good no there's a lot of carbs in a whole bar yeah yeah, absolutely. So I do. I can't remember the last time I had um, chocolate. Months, months, months ago. But knowing what our, you know, what our triggers are, and as Jackie said, you know, whether we're abstainers or moderators. But I think there's a there's a little little thing here that whether you're the the sweet sugar or the savory sugar. So I think mm. there's there where you said about the crisps, you know, because I know when I have say macadamias, you say they're salty. They're crunchy and they're fatty. So, you know, they're, but they're a good fat. It's not like they're, you know, a bad, say, a crisp. But when we have these, you know, engineered profiles, like, you know, the corn chips, you know, the Dorito effect where those foods are hyperpalatable engineered foods, you know, to create those cravings, then we still need to know whether we're the, the, the you know, the sweet sugar sort of addicted person or the savoury sugar addicted person. So we can still need to know what those chemical drivers are mm. and whether we moderate like Jackie, you know, all power to her or, you know, like you and me, we need to abstain f- from these, these things. Mm-hmm. No, that's, it's very true. And, and I think that's the hardest thing about being an educator in this space is that everybody is an individual and it's, it's hard to look at you. It, there's an awful lot to take in when you've had, um, a very inadequate paradigm being taught for years, the calories in, calories out, if only you exercised enough, you'd be fine. If only you ate less, you'd be fine, uh, which are obviously completely untrue. And so you've got to unlearn that and feel confident about eating healthy fats Uh, and think of food differently. Think about it being nutritious rather than is it nutritious or not? What will it give me or not? And, And also about the motivations behind the companies that promote things. Like I think that particularly about vegan foods, I think um, one of one of my one of my really close relatives became a vegan a few years ago, and, and she felt amazing for a while because she ate real food and she gave up alcohol for a while and she had a lot more nutrients from her food and and she felt good because you know you've got that psych if you don't want to eat animals you've got that psychological thing of you know i'm not doing it anymore and you may even think that you're helping the planet in your own small way um but then of course you slip into eating lots of processed food because that's where the vegan space is going it's going into processed foods and so a bit like the gluten-free space if you eat naturally gluten-free food nobody needs to buy a gluten-free product do they 
as in a product that's been made in a factory, you can eat, you can eat meat and fish and vegetables and fruits and dairy without any gluten at all. Um, but once a food eating pattern is taken over by um, the food industry, then bad things happen. As happened with, say, Atkins yeah. and happened with gluten free. Um, in the UK, this might surprise people, but you used to be able to get all sorts of foods on prescription for free if you were celiac. So you could get biscuits and cake and cake mix and and um, uh, pasta, uh, obviously bread and rolls and everything that was gluten-free and used to be able to get it on prescription because they, um, you're allowed free prescriptions as a celiac and this is how the companies negotiated it. But after a while... Um, probably I don't know five or ten between five and ten years ago they banned everything apart from I think bread and flour but you can still get those on prescription but nobody taught me when I was a medical student that you could be a celiac and live your life eating real food but you can yeah it's obviously a bit difficult just like it's difficult for low carbers or difficult for vegans because you know foods get and um, when you go out to eat, it's it's difficult because people don't re- realize, um, you know, which foods contain gluten and which foods can't. But you can educate yourself. I mean, there was life for celiacs before gluten free food was invented. <laughs> there probably weren't that many celiacs if we go back in in a long time ago before before we introduced grains and before we changed the grains. I'm sure, you know, um, Dr. William Davis talks about this in his um wheat wheat belly book that the the wheat has changed because the combine harvesters need to come in and harvest it so they've changed the wheat so it's shorter and i think a lot of our problems have come about since then because it's a different wheat to what we used to have Mm, yeah well wheat's been around for ten thousand years hasn't it yeah and um but we managed for millions of years before that yeah, we did. Brain. We did. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you put that in there. Yeah, we did. We managed without it. And it's not harmful to give up bread. Um, and that was one of the f- things that struck me when I learned about keto. I, I, I learned that bread wasn't an essential food stuff. Um, there was a time in my life I was very, very short of money when I was a student and my parents couldn't help me and I didn't have a job and I had lots of work to do. And I just couldn't afford food Uh, a bit like, you know, a bit like people today, you know, because the price of food's gone up such a lot. And, and I had to prioritize and think, where can I get food from? And I used to go to the butchers and they used to, you could get mints if, if um, they would have end cuts, you know, that they'd all put together or, or cheese where they'd actually grated cheese from lots of the end cuts of cheese. And it was much cheaper. And, you know, I never would have prioritized buying like a Mars bar or something like that because I had so little money. You know, you, you had to spend it on on things that would do you good. And instinctively, I felt that, you know, I would it would be better to get a little bit of meat than something, something sweet or some donuts. And it's often said that, oh, you know, junk food's cheap food and poor people can't afford um, can't afford um, real food. And it's well, the thing is, poor people, when you're really poor and you've actually got zero, you can't afford any food at all, you know, no matter what it's like. But if you've got a little bit of money, wouldn't it be better to spend like a pound on sardines rather than a pound on five donuts? 
But I think it also goes to they need to know what to eat. You know, that's the sort of stuff. So mm. it, it, it's all about those health literacies, about knowing, as you said, you know, the where the the donut, you know, gives you that sense of, you know, comfort and warmth and it gives you that sort of, you know, feeling of safety or security that, you know, that's the, that's the thing Whether they have those processed carbohydrates. It gives you that high, as we know mm. from from Wheat Billy and Grain Brain, you know, Perlmutter's book, that we get that sort of, case, not not only from dairy, the caseomorphins, but the um, endomorphins from, you know, the carbohydrates that we do get that that high, you know, from, from the food. So that's why the, the neurochemistry is so important to understand how the food, you know, has an effect on our brains, you know, as well as the fact that we have these sugar roller coasters so we do feel those intense cravings but if we're stressed oh that's a whole nother kettle of fish you know when we have those cortisols driving our hunger hormones as well you know our ghrelins then you know we're just this chemical hormonal um you know concoction of just you know we're in this continuous cycle so how do we break free from that well, we need to obviously, you know, through um, through obviously changing the way that we eat, we're changing our brain chemistry so we don't have those continuous drivers. But that's aside from, you know, we need to sleep well, we need to manage our stress, we need to have some sort of, you know, physical activity of some kind. But, um, yeah, just to sort of mitigate all of those other um, other factors as well, you know, to make better choices. But we need to know what those choices are yeah and that's right that's very true and and you made me fit when you were talking about that you made me remember that um right through my life I have had you know I've been eating say chocolate's a really good example so I've been eating chocolate regularly and I was aware that I needed to go about three weeks without chocolate to actually lose the drive to eat chocolate and um and so periodically I would give it up and manage it and I might be off it for a few months and then um I would have another bar <laughs> and then I would go back into the cycle of eating chocolate regularly and I would think oh, God, why did I do it again yeah. um and something I think there is something about the understanding about the brain chemistry and how we're all being engineered to eat these things um and and, and in understanding it it's not like you can immediately give it up but you realise that you're being played, really, yeah. and that if you actually do break free and stay off it, you will stay off it. And I would say that my life changed in 2013 um, forever, and that when I gave up these things, I really never went back to them. I mean, I'm, you know, when I describe these days of eating a whole bar of chocolate, I mean, it was probably like one every three months, if that, and then it became zero. Like, so now it's not an issue and it hasn't been an issue for years. It was probably just the initial couple of years and you can't do everything at once. No. I, you know, and you're prioritising, obviously, you know, you're prioritising the the major structural things was obviously, you know, the therapeutic restriction, the therapeutic restriction of carbohydrates, um, you know, to to manage that. But unpacking all of that, you've sort of, you know, you, you've reflected on the fact that you had obviously these other drivers and that's really, you know, around the addiction sort of stuff. And that's, as you said, it's, that's a whole different um, silent epidemic, you know, in our community, which, you know, layered upon 
the obesity, which layers upon the metabolic, you know, um, syndrome sort of presentations. So, you know, that it really is quite complex as food systems is, you know, it's about the literacies, it's about the food deserts, it's about the food supply, it's about the corporate interests, as you said, it's not just as simple as, um, as just eat less, move more, which we've been told that's the secret to everything, eat less, move more. Mm. But just on that, I, I may, may make a bit of a joke because my um, on campus, on the on my on the university campus is is the gym. So I, I, not more than one hundred meters away is is this really great, fabulous gym. So my colleagues see me walking out, and it's just like <laughs> I'm just going to go walk on the treadmill so I can actually have a have a you know like a biscuit. You know, I'm just going to walk on the treadmill for a hundred calories so I can have a biscuit, and I just sort of have a secret joke to myself, and they all <laughs> go, "Oh yeah, good thinking, yeah, yeah." never you're perpetuating it (laughs) but in my head I'm just I'm just sort of it's um it's funny how it is it's just it's just so um yeah people it's still the accepted wisdom and I'm but I'm just having the irony of it all for myself it's just yeah well so it's very hard I was reading something she wrote recently about um it's sort of moving naturally, really, and 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 about how the gym is so unnatural, and it makes you think that you know you're expending um, all these calories, and therefore you can eat a Mars bar or whatever, and and how wrong that is, and how if you want to exercise, you know, like clean your own house or or um, walk to the post office rather than going on a bicycle or 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 you know, um, say going in a car, and um, and just being more natural about exercise and not feeling it is actually quite a release realizing that you don't have to exercise enough to burn off whatever you've eaten it's not like life's not like that really is it yeah and she had a really great talk where she sort of broke it down to those component parts where you know where she was looking at the energy equations and really broke it down to you know incorporating the the thermogenic you know parts of food and the the non-exercise parts of exercise and that sort of stuff so the non-thermogenic stuff about exercise so that was we should put a link Jackie to the in the show notes for for her presentation on that but what what is really good for me and the reason for going to the gym is um is my stage of life and you know that sort of peri perimenopausal and my family history of my mother having really bad osteoporosis. So in my mind, I know that I need to maintain high levels of, say, protein, you know, really good quality sources of protein. So I maintain my lean body mass because now that I'm in my in my golden years and sarcopenia, <gasps> 1% of my lean body is going to magically disappear if I don't um, lift heavy things often. Yeah. And so... I mean, it, it is a bit unnatural, but that's the only way that I know I, can't, I need to maintain my lean body mass to maintain my bone density. And that actually is, you know, I exercise my eye candy at the gym. How do you get exercise? You know, I get yeah. them gains, but, you know, just inspire me, young man, with that lifting heavy things. Cool. The old lady has to lift heavy things. Yeah, it's a different. It's a different angle, isn't it? It's like you eat food differently and you exercise differently. And as Zoe's not obviously not a fan of the gym on a personal level, but I, when I have been to a gym, I have quite enjoyed certain aspects of it. 
and and I've gone for different reasons. I mean, some of the classes are really good and fun, aren't they? And um, I, I broke my leg a few years back, and uh, I needed to go twice a day for my rehab. And I, I enjoyed that as a sort of a way of making my leg stronger and, and making sure it got back to its sort of full full fitness. Mm. And it, it is really good. Um, so when I was living and working in the UK um, in Chelmsford, the gym was was a community. So it was a non-work community for me. So not, you know, I had a small circle of, um, you know, of making new friends. And the gym, actually, I was not the older, the, there was older ladies than me that were lifting heavier than me. And they were just so inspiring and the trainers were really good strength and conditioning. So they understood that they weren't muscle, muscle meatheads, that they were actually, um, you know, really good for not exercise physiology, but just the strength and conditioning of, of smart programmed exercise. But the community was, was excellent there. So that for me was the outlet, was the social, the social thing. I just happened to do exercise while I was there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, community is very important. I mean, we're trying to build up communities. Are we, you know, we have been and obviously we've been um, hampered a wee bit by <clears throat> by COVID because of everything breaking down for a while. Um, but when we, when you were asking Jackie about what happened in the practice when we changed, um, so people did change, look at their own eating habits and change them. We obviously changed the advice for diabetic people, but everybody started talking to everybody else. So I would have strangers come up to me uh, when I was walking in the community or through the practice and say, oh, Dr. McCormack, you know, I'm doing your diet. And I'd say, well, it's not my diet. It's 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 a way of thinking about food. It's a new lifestyle. And I'm really glad you're doing it. I'm glad for you. You know, what have you noticed? But even then, other doctors from other practices would talk to me or my husband and say, oh, what are you doing in your practice? It sounds like it's a bit different. Um, and I think an awful lot of people quietly just started doing it. A lot of my friends and family and connections and also patients, not just ones I'd seen, but ones who talked to somebody I'd seen started to do it. But I think that the big danger at the moment is being taken over by the processed food companies. And um, recently I, I, um, I, I was at my daughter's house and I was clearing out, you know, we were, she was moving house and I was helping her. And, and she has followed very successfully followed a keto diet in the past and I noticed that she and her husband had quite a few keto products and I just reflected on the fact that that's what happened with Atkins and I think we need to reclaim the keto space as something that can be completely free of a product because products cost more you know you've got to get the ingredients together you've got to pay somebody to make the products you've got to package it up you've got to pay someone to transport the product and you've got to pay someone to sell the product whereas and, you know, with a real thing, you're just paying someone to grow it and someone to transport it and someone to sell it. And it is just what it is, like a carrot, which is a higher carb thing. It's just a carrot. You might avoid it. You might have it as part of your keto diet in small quantities, but it is just a carrot. And, um, you know, a piece of meat, which has just been cut from an animal, is just a piece of meat. And it's there's nothing else in it. Um, whereas these products, I don't know what they do to your microbiome. I don't know what they do to your brain chemistry. I don't know if they prolong your, um, you know, your sweet addiction. You, we, we don't know enough about addiction to sweet foods to say whether um, the newest sweetener um, actually helps or harms you. We don't know. So, so I re very much encourage people to stay out of the processed keto space. Yeah. 
and it's just they've jumped on the bandwagon they can see it's a movement that's taking off and they don't want to lose their income the big food companies so that everything is branded keto low carb but when you actually look you know you have to pick that thing off the shelf and have a look on the back and see what are the ingredients and is that something you want to put in your body because some of it is not and some of it are even if they're lower carb sugars they're still sugar they still break down to sugar yeah well there's a whole community of microbes living inside us and they're very important for our health and we don't know enough about them yet but what if that and i think it probably is changing in the human population in the same way the soil's degrading in the earth and we need to look after our microbiomes and it seems to me that using natural foods is a better way of looking after our microbiomes than um, using processed untested foods because they won't be tested on the microbiome because microbiome research is such an early stage anyway Mm. and they won't be testing processed foods to see what happens we don't even know we can't even agree yet what a healthy microbiome looks like except it should be you know we know it should be very diverse but um there is research showing that a lot of sweeteners affect your microbiome adversely um and yeah so I, i tend to avoid processed um keto stuff We've we've seen how obviously we do know or in a way processed foods because we've seen the population effect um, in, in that sort of way. And we've seen the population effect with mental health. And it was really interesting, the um, a psychiatrist, an NHS psychiatrist at the PHC conference was talking about the relationship between the microbiome and um, those neurotransmitters and particularly the ones that affect our mood. And she was sort of showing, you know, what, what, you know, pathways they were in terms of the microbiome and the neurotransmitters, particularly like serotonin, you know, the hap- one of the happy hormones. And she was sort of saying how um, in her practice that she was encouraging those with, you know, chronic, um, living with chronic mental health, you know, to improve their diet, to improve those pathways because, you know, she was well, well understood how the food affects those particular neurotransmitters with the microbiome so you know we we do have some of the parts of the puzzle but not as you said you know the the studies the double blind randomized controlled trials of microbiomes and you know food qualities but yet we can see parts of the puzzle um Mm. just population basis yeah so yeah one of the things i was saying to jackie before you joined was that um Often we come into it at a certain time and do, you know, come into the keto space at a certain time and do a lot of our own research and find out about things. And I came into it partly through Robert Lustig and partly through um, David Perlmutter, who's obviously the brain specialist. Um, but at any given time, there, you know, once a year's elapsed or another year, another year, you do need to go back and look through everything, you know, see who's around like Georgia Ede. She's a really good psychiatrist talking about mental health. And um, I've had psychiatrist patients I've taught about grain brain because they didn't know about it and they've used it themselves, you know, for themselves first to try and improve their health. So I think that even though I learned a lot back in 2013, 14, and I've involved with PHC, I think there's, I, I feel instinctively there will be an awful lot out there that I don't know about yet, people I don't know about, you know, I, I feel inspired to by your podcast, actually, to go out there and think, who else don't I know about now at this point in time? Who hasn't, who's escaped my notice? Like you mentioned Dave Wolf, he came to the PHC 
um, the addiction day. Yeah, and he was he was very interesting. So I had heard of him before, but not in any detail. Um, so uh, you know, even though he's really quite famous, um, so uh, yeah, back to mental. Sorry about that, but back back to mental health. I mean, I do feel it's it's one thing you can do for yourself, no matter what your health's like. Look at your diet and think. How can I improve this? What little thing can I do? What do I know is wrong? If you say to people, you know, what's your diet like? Often they'll say either it's crap or, oh, I, I, eat, um, I eat fish and chicken. I try and avoid red meat and I try and have five a day. You know, they, they come out with sound bites. It's really irritating. So, so I'll say to them, well, what, what do you think? You know, like talk me through an average day is quite a good one. Um, so one lady said, I just pick at food. I don't actually make any of my own food. I pick at the children's food. One lady said, I don't actually eat food um, because I'm fat. So why would I eat food? She said, I just drink tea and put sugar in it. And I know I don't have enough calories a day to maintain my weight. So I should lose weight. But she wasn't losing weight. Yeah. So, I, you know, for her, everybody's in a different. So she's a really good example of someone who ate no food. So she could improve her diet by eating any food. Not, I would say, donuts, but if she ate, um, you know, a piece of meat or fish or or even a fruit or a vegetable, she would improve her diet from what it was before. Um, but a lot of people know instinctively what they're doing wrong. Like if you ask my mom, she would say, oh, I eat too much sweet stuff. Yeah. She knows, you know, or or I've got a real thing about crisps, you know, and, and they'll know, you know, they'll they'll stuff crisp packets in the side of the car or or they'll. I don't know, in their sock drawer or something. You know, people know, people know instinctively what they do wrong and they think, well, okay, well, what? maybe that's not the thing they can change today, but maybe they can change something that from what they've learned about a low-carb diet. You know, maybe they could, like me, stop eating cereal because they don't really like it anyway. And or just the, even, the, even stop eating breakfast. Yeah, that's right. There's a funny line in, um, oh gosh, there's a program on here called Breeders. And it's about a couple who is struggling bringing up kids and the mum comes to stay and the mum is offered breakfast. And she says, oh, God, I haven't eaten breakfast since the 1990s. It makes you fat. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a, that's her. She's a healthy looking lady. Um, and it was dumb tongue in cheek. But, you know, that's that's modern. That is like last week. So so we have come a long way. Um, in terms of when I when I learned about it in England, hardly anybody knew about keto and low carb. Um, uh, you know, when I spoke to patients about it, they'd never heard of it. Uh, at the end of my time as a GP, when I mentioned it, most of them had heard of it. They often would think it was a fad. I mean, I think that's something we're up against, the anti, anti-keto propaganda. It's a fad, whereas it's actually a very ancient way of eating. Yeah. And that, we would have had, yeah, they would have had Atkins, you know, they would have understood about Yeah, that. I, I don't think That's people think of Atkins as being keto. If you know, uh, we know it is, but I mean, in, in, say, my average patient who comes in has heard of Atkins, but they would have thought of it as being a meat heavy diet. Um, as, and just as Atkins, because his name was attached to it. Hmm. Yeah, so but then, you're right, it is very, it is very similar. So when did you stop being a GP? Um, 2020. Ah. Yeah. The only work that was available to me was out of hours, you know, just emergency work, not um, uh, I didn't. Well, my family circumstances meant that I didn't want to continue in a practice. Uh, and I'd, I was already quite involved with the PHC at that stage. So I thought what well, I would actually work within under the PHC umbrella, um, trying to develop systems um, that encourage, you know, GPs to teach low carb and um, encourage governments to change the law. Um, 
that sort of, you know, working in, in, in those two spheres, the government and health department sphere and the GP sphere. Um, yeah, so, so that's, what, that's what I do now. I, I work within the public health collaboration. I have my own little website. You'll see I don't have to. Um, I've just got a thing on that I do a WhatsApp group and I do a weekly Zoom. Uh, with with um, a group of people. I also work with a person called Treflin Jones, who is a, a guy who changed his weight from 21 stone to 10 and a half stone a few years ago wow. uh, through a keto diet and one meal a day, intermittent fasting. So I, I do um, I, I do work with him um, running. He runs he ran groups. So before COVID, we ran something like 20 groups a, a month in Warrington, which is a town of 200,000 people. And then COVID put paid to that. Uh, Treflin's been running an online group since then. Um, and I've been doing my bit of work uh, with PHC. Uh, but Treflin's going to start, um, he's going to start face-to-face -face groups again. So uh, now he put a notice out yesterday. Um, so that'll be good. I think it's getting people talking. We went to a place, I met him in uh, the middle of Warrington in um, Witherspoons. It's one of these, um, you know, you know, Witherspoons, yeah? Nice. So mm. they give you free they give you free coffee if you buy for one coffee. You keep getting coffee if you want to keep drinking <laughs> got black coffee. So we sat there and we chatted about what we could do and how we could organise groups in future and that sort of thing. And a young man walked past who Treffin just knew from a totally different sphere, not through his groups. And it turned out that he was a, a keto hero as well and uh, and he had completely changed his life through keto a young man who'd previously been very overweight and he hadn't even learned through traveling and that's one of the things that's changed so so i would get people coming in and even in my last sort of times a gp in 2019 or at 20 and they would say things like i do something you really disapprove of doctor brackets they hadn't heard of me um, i you know i do this keto diet and it's really changed my life and i was like very good. Fantastic. Yeah. I'm glad you've heard about it, not through me, because that means the word's getting around. Um, you know, so it's really good. Yeah. So Treflin, Treflin's an example. If anybody's over 20 stone and they want to half their body weight, Treflin Jones, um, he runs a, um, a group called uh, Lokalofa because he maintains that for some very overweight people, they can't eat, they can actually eat too much fat and they need to keep the fat down. So it stands for low carb, low fat. Obviously, you don't want to go too low in your fat. But, uh, you know, certainly if you pile on the cream and pile on the coconut oil, it may not be helpful to you. Um, so he does, I guess, this is a version of keto. He's done keto and he's done intermittent fasting. And uh, and he uh, now really is a champion of one meal a day. Um, so, so yeah, so I work with Treflin. So Treflin found me on the Internet and he came to my house because at that stage, I actually accidentally had my address on the Internet. And he came and said he'd like to help me with my groups. So he's actually, I feel I more help him. Um, he's very good. So you're still keeping busy then? Yeah, yeah, I am. Um, yes, yeah, yeah, just very <laughs> differently. And maybe it's a good thing, really, because within the NHS, you only really get 10 minutes with a patient. And, and it can feel like you're foisting information on them um, against their will if they're not connected. You know what I mean? If you're telling them about keto or a better diet. And a lot of people just don't have time for that because they've struggled to get in and they just want to discuss their whatever, fill in the gap, you know, asthma or whatever. Um, but that was the real revelation for me because at the beginning I thought keto was just about weight and avoiding diabetes. But what I saw over time was that people improved their arthritis, their asthma, their irritable bowel disease, so many other conditions, obviously depression, anxiety, so many things improve when you improve your nutrition. And that's what it's about. And if keto was called good nutrition, 
if you know what I mean. I think it wouldn't be possible. It wouldn't be so easy to actually just sort of um, make products in its yeah. name. Yeah, because yeah. it's about good nutrition and where you get good nutrition from. And the other person I'd like to have a shout out about is Dr. Terry Walls, who reversed her multiple sclerosis with good diet. And, and, and she, in her book, points out how much you need to have in terms of vegetables to get certain nutrients. Um, and I've actually read her book about MS um, about three times um, for personal reasons. Um, uh, and it's incredible how many vegetables you need to eat to get certain nutrients. It's absolutely, well, good luck with that. That's what I think. You know, like I, ha I take my hat off to anyone who feels, you know, that they, you know, don't want to eat animals and they're prepared to become ill, you know, as a result, because you do have to eat an awful lot of certain vegetables, vegetable matter to actually get enough nutrients. And mm -hmm. that's why it's so much easier with a keto diet, because the things you eat in a keto diet, like say liver, um, eating the whole animal nose to tail, um, you get so many more nutrients in a small amount of food. Um, in comparison with the vast quantities of, of spinach you have to eat or broccoli or whatever. Um, but Terry Walls um, really did, she, she really does outline that, you know, and she doesn't, she's not judgmental at all. She's got a, a vegetarian and vegan way of trying to get enough nutrients, but the quantities are enormous. And I would say in the current economic climate, probably unaffordable for many people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and people tend to think if they're vegetarian or vegan, they tend to think that they're being, good for their body they're being really healthy but they don't think about where they're getting their protein from so, so somebody will say to me uh, i'm i'm vegetarian i'm vegan i'm plant-based plant-based is the new the new term isn't it mm. um, and i say so where do you get your protein from oh well i i don't uh i don't don't know and uh, i or i'll eat beans and i said but what about the um, different proteins that you need are you protein com are you combining proteins to get all the proteins you need uh no so there's a lot of misinformation as well i think around plant-based eating mm. i think it's easier to get your proteins than it is to get a lot of your micronutrients um i think that's i think that's the thing and i think a lot of um micronutrients aren't as bioavailable in vegetable um, foods as they are uh, plant-based food, plant foods as they are in animal foods like vitamin a is different that's some things that we harken points out that the vitamin a in plants is not as bioavailable as the vitamin a in in animal foods yeah um but but i i do i mean i've always tried to coast a middle line with my groups and and just you know not offend people really you know if you want to be vegetarian or vegan or you know whatever that's you know let's think about how it can be lower carb but I do find over time there's a drift towards meat eating and omnivore um, from from veganism. And a lot of people try it to see if it helps them. And when it doesn't, they give it up. Um, I've seen that. There was um, there's a blogger who um, who was using it for psoriasis and arthritis who gradually moved to becoming carnivore. And uh, and he he was describing the you know his thinking going through. It's obviously different if people are doing it um, because they want to avoid eating animals. But but it's not the only thing people think about in life. You know, what if you do start to become very ill, like Dr. Terry Walls, and get a very severe form of multiple sclerosis? You know, how far are you prepared to go in avoiding animal eating animals? Um, you know, and and I expect there would be people who would just let themselves deteriorate and die rather than eat animals. But how, who does that help, really? You're just one person, mm. you know, and, and it's, it's certainly not the way to go. 
Um, so, I mean, hers is a message of hope and mine's a message of hope as well, really, you know, that you can reverse obesity, you can reverse diabetes. If you're a type one, you can't reverse it completely, but you can make it much easier to control. My, my colleague, um, Ian Lake, has, I don't know if you've interviewed him in your podcast yet. Yeah, 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 long time um, ago. So, yeah, so he's got one uh, website called Type One Keto, and now he's teaching doctors and nurses how to how to manage Type One diabetes. He's got a professional forum to actually teach them twenty hours learning how to manage Type One diabetes as low carber, um, and he's a low carb person who's got Type One diabetes. So no matter what your condition, you can improve it with your diet, and uh, and yeah, and so that's it. Yeah, right. So is there anything that we haven't spoken about that you would like to tell the listeners? Um, probably not. Probably not. <laughs> you think we've covered a lot, haven't we? We have covered a lot. It's a, it's a great journey. A it's a wonderful journey. I really love the way I eat. And you did say to me, how do I eat? Well, I'm not very strictly low carb, but I am very carb aware. And I don't eat. It's easy to say the things I don't eat or what I do eat. I prioritize meat, fish, vegetables. Um, non-sweet fruits although I'm also I'm actually quite cautious with berries now because of you know what I found out with the with the freestyle libra um, and I don't at all eat things like crisps um, donuts um, cakes other than sort of a nice homemade one um, if I, I have to avoid being rude but I'm not really into cake now at all um, and I avoid chocolate because I've clearly got an issue with it mm. um, yeah so that's it but I love I love how I eat I love how I feel about food. I feel it's a nourishing thing now rather than something I was vaguely frightened of or anxious about. Yeah. You know, I feel really comfortable with food now, um, which is funny thinking that. So I think that's about it, really. Okay. Yeah, it, it's interesting. We, we we don't know what we don't know, you know, at the time. And, you know, we think that we, we knew, well, as a doctor, doctor knows best, you know, that was the, the thing that you thought you did. But, you know, that's all part of the journey and I think that that sort of self-awareness and reflection that you have used not only for yourself as you said you, you did that what about your family have they come on the journey yes. with you? yeah so um some some of them have I mean my sister obviously changed her diet very much um my mum hasn't my mum's a real sugar addict um and she's actually um got a great attitude to life and she's she's 84 and She's very happy. She's good. Um, but yeah, she and she probably she probably has less than she used to, to be fair. Uh, my daughter changed her life with a ketogenic diet and, and she ha- is, you know, very, you know, that's really worked for her. Um, and my son, my son eats well. He's someone who eats, just eats really well. Um, he cooks from scratch and and um, he eats well. My other daughter uses it, probably uses low carb as a tool occasionally when she feels she's put a bit of weight on um and she's very aware of it they're all very aware of it um that of what i do uh, and some of my extended family have really taken it on board so yeah yeah no it's uh, and, and probably quite a lot of my colleagues as well maybe not through me but just by being introduced to the space mm. i noticed quite a lot of them look healthier um one of my colleagues had a chronic condition and uh, i taught him i taught him about it and and he said his condition got a lot better so that was nice um yeah lovely so how can people get in contact with you? Um, my website is fatismyfriend.co.uk, uh, all lowercase, and uh, to reflect how there are good fats out there yep. and how you don't you need to make peace with your fat and appreciate it's there for a reason. 
Um, and uh, and then my my um, my email address and and all my uh, social media links are on that website. But um, my email address is Joanne. You know it, don't you? Because you've emailed me, Joanne at the Swallows, which is the A T T H E, and then at me dot com. Um, but if if my email address changes, um, everything will be on my website. Um, yeah, that's great. So what we'd like to do is leave the listeners with some of your, you know, profound and insightful wisdom, <laughs> your, which is really your three top tips, please. Okay. So uh, one would be to prim- primarily or almost exclusively eat real food. Another one is to recognize your own addictions and decide then the third one is after you've recognized your own addictions, whether you can manage them in moderation or whether you have to give them up completely. Mm. Mm. that's yeah see jackie is the is the yin to my yang you know she's the moderator and i'm the abstainer so yeah we 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 talk about that one quite a lot so um yeah which is is it's true i think that's the only way you know well not the only way but it's it's the tension the tension between how you manage manage those things that you know are going to be problems yeah well thanks very much for having me in the podcast that was great That's great. Thank you for your time. Yeah. Thanks. Have a great day or a great night. (laughs) Great night. Yeah, Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Bye. So, Jackie, it was really, as you said, serendipitous. Uh, I do like that word. But, you know, it was a sliding doors moment that really transformed Dr. Joanne's career. Yeah, and... And she said it was um, Dr. Robert Lustig, and we saw him at the 2019 conference as well. So we did, and that bit of truth, you know, about sugar was absolutely again one of these explosive, mind-boggling. How did we not know this type of information? So as we, as we've just recently had Nina Teicholtz, you know, we've had these sorts of big bombshells in our understanding of the role of nutrition in our health. Yeah. I mean, one of the things in The Bitter Truth was about juice as well, wasn't it, with kids drinking juice? Yeah, that's not mainstream. We all feed, well, I did, gave my kids juice thinking that you're doing something good. They never never had Cokes and things. But then you're just mainlining sugar to the liver. It's yeah well it was actually it's almost you know, criminal that we don't know about it but i think you know we were doing the right things thinking that we were doing the right things as parents in giving giving our kids healthy choices but little did we know that it was obviously another form of sugar so one of the many forms of sugar yeah and so and dr joanne was she spoke a lot about addiction so you know she recognized that she she has an addiction so she's had to stop eating lots of things with sugar so but you know was it her her mum was baking a lot when she was young but she said she didn't bake that much so it's surprising that she has such a big sugar addiction when she didn't seem it didn't come across that she was eating lots of sugar all the time but remember that it's nature and nurture right so if we have, and we've heard recently about the epigenetics, the role of epigenetics, that that's actually, we can be primed for that. It may not take a little, you know, or a lot, but it's 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 just obviously 
part of our, our nature. But then obviously we have these environments, these, you know, sugar-filled environments that that really create further further damage. Yeah. yeah so I sense. think, you know, it's it doesn't matter in, in some ways, you know, it's yeah. really the genes turned on, so Correct. you have yeah, to turn it genetic. off by abstaining. Mm-hmm. Which again, you know, you're my yin to my yang, my moderator friend. Um, so you, you are, um, you know, you don't obviously have that similar expression to to me, that genetic disposition for me. So, um, but yeah. saying that, I do, I I think I eat more sweet things now than I used to. Maybe no, not true. I won't go there. Um, so saying that, I still like to have something sweet after I've eaten. I can just moderate the quantity. It doesn't send me off in a spiral. And and sometimes I would love to eat lots more and I just stop myself. So I think that's the difference. I still want that sweet thing. And and Dr. Joanne was saying how she doesn't have sugar anymore. I'm not sure that I could do that. You know, maybe you get used to it. I'm sure you do get used to it, not having any at all. But remember... Dr. Dr. Sires was saying that, you know, the thing about those habits, those patterns, that you've patterned yourself to have that sweet thing in the evening, yeah. so that, that square of dark chocolate. So I don't know, as you said, it's it's not that you want the sweet thing, it's just the habit of that. And wasn't it something around your, your tea with a biscuit, that sort of thing in the afternoon yeah so i was having tea with some chocolate in the afternoon now that i have i've done some work on that and i don't have it every day so i don't have i quite often will just have the cup of tea now and i don't have something with it but not always not always Mm. well well done for you for breaking breaking those those habits but i think the good thing going back to, to to Dr. Giant's story is obviously, well, as I said, for me, the lived experience that she had that experience. So she said that she trialed, you know, low carb for three months before, you know, leashing it, unleashing it on her practice partners and obviously her, her patients as well. So, you know, that sense of lived experience and how it transformed her life the messaging was too good. She had to share it with the practice and obviously, you know, making a difference in her patient's life. So all power to Dr. Joanne. Yeah. And and she was very lucky that the, the practice took it on board and, and ran with it. Absolutely. She, she doesn't think that they're still doing it, but at least they did for a period of time. Mm-hmm. All power to her. And we thank her for her advocacy and her commitment um, and her role with the PHC too. So thank you for for transforming not only the lives of you know her practice and her patients, but um, certainly the good work that she's doing with the, the PHC. Yeah, thank you. Where can we get the show notes for this episode? So the show notes can be found at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash 114. Great. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? 
If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto 1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication.